So there you go, folks. Someone is uh, currently selling, celebrating a birthday right here in my apartment complex. And by my apartment complex, by me saying that, I mean, uh, I own this place, so. Each month I pay rent. I pay to, pay to myself. That's just the best way. That's that's what they call passive income stream. Inspirata Projector, what up, Northside Radio, Greenville, BC. I have a special call for you guys today. Coming straight up from Heaven's Gates. I am your host, The Truth, a.k.a. Ron Sampan. This is B.I.G. Yeah. Mm. Motivated me, have to keep moving, have to keep strong, what's wrong? People time is every other day, hurts, love is someone over with nothing, never coming back again, stress, then I hate this band, makes people change, doing stupid things, money's fucked, cause it causes all the change, because Arthur, right where I'm at the fact, get the public attack, stone him, get him attacked for what, yeah, the life of rap, my 16th overall shit, compliments, compliments, so what, you wanna be a rapper, get him a careful, cause my big man rap, you will cut you in half, get the picture with two, you don't got any bars, or hook, nice screw, sorry people, I got bad
I was imagining something called the Wedding Project, where you uh, put out these ads for people who you say have you ever wanted to get married. Um, um, do you have a wedding dress? Uh, do you have a tuxedo? Do you have a nice suit? Uh, you know, have you ever wanted to get married? We're not setting you up on a date here. We're just going to go out and take wedding photos and videos and uh, compile them into a music video. So, yeah, um, so to document that, uh, choose, um, use green screen, and you could build sets, and also natural, you know, outside stuff too. You're listening to Inspirato Projecto. Thank you so much, Northside Radio, for uh, channeling the spirit of, of Biggie. Uh, also, thank you, man, behind the machine for that awesome promo. Next up here is a song that I sang on. I, st- I played the guitar. I sang on it. And uh, so did Lawrence August and Skyco Tavis. I had this idea for a song, and I was hanging out with Lawrence, and at the time, Skyco lived right down the street. Master violinist, great director, awesome writer, just a great, kind-hearted soul, and magical cosmic fella. And so we went over there, and they, uh, he just kind of laid down a drum beat, and I said, oh, you know what? I have this riff I've been playing with, and I got little bits of these lyrics here. And um, it's called Each One Village. And Lawrence had this idea of, I mean, this was years ago. He said, man, you know, that would be so great if we could go around to Burning Man and distribute copies of the song, and so then it ends up playing, you know, people are playing it all over Burning Man. Because it's kind of this idea of creating a utopian society. So, hold on to your hats. If you got headphones, plug them in. Might be loud. But there are a lot of, a lot of little nuances in there. Fun lyrics, too. All right. Here we go. Five, four, three, two, one. Each one village cares about us. Each one village shows you their trust. Each one village gives us enough, enough love Each one village encourages us Each one village lets me be, lets me be Each one village gives us a choice, our own choice Each one village 
Kurt, it's Corey again. I forgot to add one last thing. Hey, thanks for the theme song. So, for, folks, uh, I'm with uh, Jeff Finn, the director, the maestro of Before the End, Searching for Jim Morrison, documentary that's going to be coming out. And uh, we're here at Jerry's, Jerry's Deli, uh, on... On Ventura Boulevard, Tom Petty has a, a lyric about this in one of his songs, Free Fallen. So, you know the street's famous if it's in a song, like Tom Petty. 
So um, I just want to, I'm gonna, we're going to just ask him a couple of questions about the process of putting this thing together, how soon we can uh, imagine this coming out, and all that razzmatazz. So, um, all right, so how long would you say that you've been, how long would you say you've been working on the movie? Um, I think at this point, uh, 20, 26 years. 26 years. Yeah, 26 years. What was the first piece that you started with? Where? What was the very first interview, in clean piece of investigation that you did? What was what started? Um, well, first of all, thank you for having me on. I know we are uh, uh, dear old friends at this point in the game. I always appreciate you having me on Inspirato. Either version, terrestrial or podcast. Oh, yes. Um, so, yeah, and I was joking, obviously, about the 26 years. It's only been six years, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, but beyond that, I first started uh, looking into Jim's life um, in the fall of 1985. Well, I was 18 years old, so how long is that? I, my God, uh, that's a long time. So in one form or another, I have been working on what has now germinated into the documentary uh, since 1985, uh, here and there. Uh, but as far as uh, full-time work on the film itself, uh, the last six years, it's been six years as of this past month, July. And to answer that question, uh, the very first uh, sort of official um, move I made in, in terms of... Uh, Diving in was uh, six years ago, right now, actually. It was August of 2012. Um, it was about a month after I'd made the decision to make the film. And I, I was fortunate enough to meet with Mary Werbelow, who was Jim's, uh, some say the love of his life, uh, his college-era girlfriend he met in Florida. Uh, and later, uh, she followed him out to Los Angeles. So she technically did not end up in the film because of her shyness and uh, some other uh, uh, issues she had going on, but um, her, her knowledge was fantastic. I'm really, I'll always be grateful for the knowledge she imparted and also just sort of the symbolic kickoff to have her be the first one, sort of the first interview, if you will. So you, you were able to interview her, but just not on camera? Did you just write everything down, or did you record your conversations? Yeah, I, 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 um, I took notes, meticulous notes, it, and it was just amazing. We ended up talking for three and a half hours. Um, uh, she, I found out she lived near me in Los Angeles, which blew my mind. I did not know that. So we had this sort of three and a half hour powwow, and it was incredible. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, so initially she was going to do the film, and she wasn't, and she was, and she wasn't, went back and forth. And there were some... Uh, she had some physical issues uh, uh, that sort of, I think, uh, played out that dynamic, you know. So I respected that and uh, didn't want to take advantage of, you know, her condition. So uh, the, the actual yeah, formal interview did not happen, but uh, the behind-the-scenes thing was just bi absolutely vital. So you wrote it down? You didn't record any audio? No, I wrote it down. Um, I later had some voicemails that she, she would leave me and thought about incorporating those. Um, uh, you know, in a legal context, but uh, in the end, she just was sort of like a spiritual presence mm. in the film, which is sort of fitting in a way. She sort of haunted Jim. <laughs> yeah. 
throughout his life. It, she, she really does seem to have been the love of his life. Um, she, she appeared throughout his life, even in the Doors era, when he was with Pamela Corson. So it's pretty, pretty intriguing. Now, did you, um, would you go back to her to refer uh, other interviews he had with other people? Like, oh, let me check out with her to see what her thoughts are, or, you know, like, would you, about, yeah. would she, I'm getting this idea that maybe she was someone you'd bounce ideas off I of. Did. I did. I in did er, in the very early stages. I would sort of, you know, because I, I had so many irons in the fire. Uh, I was just going, you know, for broke, like contacting everyone I could find, email, phone call, le- you know, physical letter, uh, felt like sending a telegram, you know. Um, I was doing everything I could to, to drum up everyone I could. And so in the very early stages, um, yeah, I would ping pong certain uh, people and ideas off her. Uh, but it, it sort of faded quickly because, again, I wanted to respect her her condition. She had, and this is public record, she had what is known as a multiple chemical sensitivity disorder uh, where she can only eat certain foods and can only touch certain textures, and it was really heartbreaking. So I, I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to be a hindrance in her life. Did you find that once you had her interview, that became sort of a, a, a snowflake that you could attach the other, you know, that did, that did that help bring the momentum about for the other interviews? Where you're like, hey, I interviewed her, would you mind uh, Absolutely. Be, being interviewed? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, it, like I said, it, just in terms of... Uh, Symbolic uh, presence for me in the film. Um, also, just ins- inspirational. Uh, it was just so inspirational for me to have met with her, and I appreciated her time. Um, that it really did. It helped sort of snowball, kick off the whole thing, you know. And the next thing I knew, I was just off to the races, and uh, and it's just been an incredible long journey. I know a lot of the fans, uh, you know, have gotten very restless over the last few years, and I don't blame them at all. I've also had to deal with the, the usual trolls and the haters on Facebook, that kind of thing. That comes with the territory, but you just let that roll off your back. You know, the main thing is I believe in, in what I've done, and uh, it took far longer than I ever imagined, but that's also a, a blessing because so much more has, has developed, you know, throughout these six years. And now we're at the very tail end where we're um, uh, uh, making forays uh, into selling, hopefully selling the film to Netflix or Amazon or Hulu, HBO, Showtime, you know, one of the major streaming services. So who, um, did, did she refer you to anyone that she had contacts with? Or she's like, oh, I'm still friends with this person or that person, or you, sh- you ought to uh, interview them? Yeah, Mary, yes. She did, she did mention a, a small handful of names. Uh, and offered to put in a good word for me at that point. Uh, whether she did that or not, I'm not, I'm not certain. But I know um, she definitely, uh, I think she gave me a couple of phone numbers and things like that. Again, this is six years ago, uh, August to August, so it's pretty amazing. <laughs> but I do remember that. She was, she was very helpful in her way. Uh, but she was also dealing with that, that disorder, and it made it tough for her, in her own words, to have um, you know, a linear conversation Mm. The, the way we are, because she would sort of veer off into tangents and stuff. Um, and again, it was just really it was sort of heartbreaking. So I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to be invasive in her life. And uh, so I knew to sort of pull back. And I did. Now, did you find that through your interviews, you were able to catch the, the big fish, so to speak, that you 
you know, maybe you're like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I'd ever get a chance to interview this person, but holy cow, out, out, out of nowhere, the cosmos just opened up this opportunity in the strangest way for me to talk to this person. Oh, yeah. I, um, yeah, I mean, the biggest one for me, personally, <clears throat> excuse me, was um, Andy Morrison, Jim's brother. Mm. Uh, he very kindly, uh, I mean, it took me a long time to get to him, to find him, and then sort of earn his trust took months you know months and months actually um but i I eventually did uh meet with him and interview him in his home and uh we really hit it off and he said yours is the first documentary i've ever done an interview for and it's the only one i'll ever do i still i still don't know why (laughs) uh but i was so cool very flattered and very grateful for that um i mean it was it was an exclusive uh it remains an exclusive and so that was huge and then um uh, meeting with Ann Morrison, Jim's sister. Now, again, that was uh, a situation where it was all off-camera because she's sort of, you know, notoriously shy. Doors fans know, Jim Morrison fans know that she's very shy. And uh, and she made that clear from day one. But the, the information she gave me behind the scenes was just fantastic. And she was so helpful and kind. And she even gave us seven photos to use in the film that had never been shown before. So that, you know, giving her blessing in that way. And I've told this story uh, here and there, I think on your show uh, a year or so ago, about how she hugged me and said, I'm so glad you're making this documentary. This is almost verbatim, because she said, you know, I'm doing the hug here, the air hug, remembering it. She said, I'm so glad you're making this documentary because I want my, or I want the world to know there was more to my brother than the Lizard King. Which is, of course, Jim's... You know, one of Jim's media nicknames, wow. the Lizard King. That's know. a great quote on the DVD box, actually. Like, that's a neat... Yeah, I mean, it was... That's a golden nugget. That right was there. a lovely moment, and uh, yeah, it was it was very cool. Uh, I'm really always happy when I remember that, you know. And then another big one, a big fish, to use the David Lynch term, mm-hmm. <laughs> was Jack Holtzman, who was the president of Electra Records, the label that signed the doors, gave them their real start, and the Electra went on to be this huge label uh, through the years that signed everyone from The Cure to The Pixies to, I mean, a, a million bands, a million artists. Um, so I was able to finally get to Jack Holzman after many trying months, just like with Andy, sort of earning his trust. But I, I always love the story because it's absolutely true. When I first got Holzman on the phone, it was a rainy day in L.A., and you know how rare that is. Oh, it's great! You right, got him right, on the phone. There's, there's, the ring. there's yeah. a symbolic phone, dude. I love it. I it's love like, it. It's like we have an engineer here doing the. That's uh, right. Oh my god, that was great. <laughs> so I get him on the phone, and I get about eight eight seconds or so into my spiel about who I am, what, why I'm calling, and I distinctly remember saying, "I'm not a telemarketer, so please don't hang up." <laughs> and he just cut me off, and he goes, "I can't do it very loud because we're in a restaurant here," but he he cut me off and said. Who is this? Who, who are you? And I said, well, I was just trying to explain that to you before you cut me off. <laughs> and I, I said, uh, did I catch you on a bad day? And he just started in on me. He's like, you guys, you young guys, think you can just just contact anyone? <laughs> so things did not start off well. And then later he sort of calmed down. You young guys. And uh, Yeah. And I'm not young, so that was kind of ironic. But anyway, uh, uh, he's like, you know, in his early 80s, so 
uh, he was sort of this curmudgeon, which I found endearing. And uh, and so, you know, he calmed down to the point that I was able to sort of re-explain who I was, and, and then he was great. And he apologized for, you know, being all grumpy, and we ended up doing a great interview. What sounds like he's just used to getting, his phone is just ringing off the hook from yeah. people who want to talk to him about Jim Morrison. He said that at one point, yeah. He said, you know, can you imagine, I mean, he's just contacted, you know, constantly by people every form of media from all around the world there's some this is part of the enduring legacy of Jim is people want to know about him you know there's a mystery element there in terms of what his motivations were for living uh, allegedly dying <laughs> I love that uh, allegedly dying uh, I like for that. everything he did yeah. with the doors and, and, and beyond and that's what I try to show in my film is just who was this guy for real mm-hmm. like beyond the Lizard King which he coined himself Beyond Mr. Mojo Rise, in which he coined himself, beyond his media image, the young lion, uh, the, the rock god, you know, beyond all that stuff with the doors, what was this guy really about, mm. and why? And, and going back to the day he was born, you know, his formative years are always glossed over. Uh, in favor of the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's like, let's get to the, the dirty stuff. They found him floating in the river in a bread basket. <laughs> <laughs> Saturated in his own urine. Look, there he is. We shall name him Jim. <laughs> There's our new baby. So they soaked in his own urine. <laughs> we called him Urine Jim. <laughs> we loved him just the same. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. What so was you it? went back to the early <laughs> days. You you learned about his his upbringing and maybe possibly the motivations that led him to be the prankster, you know, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. He, um, I mean, Jim is a notorious. You know, for those who are, are uh, hardcore fans, they know the drill. They know that Jim was a massive button pusher, envelope pusher, whatever you want to say. I mean, he was out there. At a pivotal time in history, uh, human history, you know, uh, walking that knife edge, and but they, again, there was way more to him than just that. You know, there was there was a, a very kind side to him, a uh, prankster side, uh, a rebellious side. I mean, you know, we're all made up of different components. It's just a lot of us aren't playing those components out in a public spotlight the way he did. So yeah, I really try to get to the core essence of what were his motivations. You know, why? Whenever, and, and, and just on the most basic surface level, you know, the low-hanging fruit, like uh, at the height of the late 60s, when everyone was singing about incense and peppermints and free love and hippie stuff, why was Jim singing about fucking his mother and killing his father and breaking on through to the other side? You know, why were the Doors sort of, along with the Velvet Underground, you know, one of the very few dark bands that later uh, sort of gave spawn to, you know, what we know as punk rock or goth, gothic rock. Um, why? why? Why was this guy wearing black leather when everyone else was wearing tie-dye, you know, day-glow, fluorescent clothes? So it's, it's fascinating um, to go down those rabbit holes. So um, I can't remember if this is something you told me or if I read it in the, the book you gave me, No One Here Gets Out Alive. Yes. Um... That his character, the Lizard King, in a sense, was a—he was playing a character of a like a like a cowboy villain. Is that kind of the right way of putting it? Yes. He uh, he said once, and again, this is on the public record. He said this in a in an interview 
which was later uh, put into print and has been reprinted many times. He's, he basically said that the Lizard King, which is a, 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 a phrase taken from a long poem that he did uh, called Celebration of the Lizard, which later had been extracted uh, to produce uh, more of like a, you know, for lack of a better term, a pop song called Not to Touch the Earth, a rock song. He originally wanted the whole, the entire Celebration of the Lizard, this massive, epic uh, uh, to be recorded by the Doors and take up, uh, you know, uh, basically an album, you know, like a concept album. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, that's how far ahead of the curve this Whoa. guy was, and they couldn't really wrap their minds around it. And Whoa. and so in the end, he had to sort of, you know, they tossed him this little door prize, no pun intended. Yeah. You know, well, how about if we just make a four-minute song out of mm. it? And that infamous line, "I am the Lizard King. I can do anything," comes from that. So, so it. The media bought it, hook, line, and sinker, and he was brilliant at manipulating the media. And he knew all about Marshall McLuhan and um, media studies, and, and you know what we now know as social media, sort of the seeds of that. And he said at one point, you know, the Lizard King was was meant to be ironic. It was tongue in cheek. It was like where you play the bad guy, the villain in a western, and you're dressed all in black, you know, Jack Palance or whatever. Um, that's not meant to be literal. You know, and, but people took it that way, and I find it fascinating uh, that that speaks to like a bigger truth for me in my film is that through the decades, almost fifty years uh, since he allegedly died, um, people tend to take Jim's story at face value. So when when the official and I'm using the air quotes, which you can't see here on this podcast, <laughs> but you can hear him. Listen, yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> When the official story is, is regurgitated throughout time, as it has been, in books, magazines, movies, uh, documentaries, you, you name it, um, people just buy it. They take it. They're like, oh, you mean he died on July 3rd, 1971 of a heart attack from too much booze? Or was it heroin? Oh, wait, wait, the story changes? It doesn't matter because I'll buy it. You know what I mean? It's like, why are you buying it? <laughs> I think you're buying it because it's convenient. Yeah. Because it... And I don't blame you. I'm not. I'm not it's judging. It's a TV dinner. It's already packaged. To their exactly. Various. It's a ready-made. And mm-hmm. I'm not judging there because I, I, we all do it. You know. Yeah. It's like, uh, but it takes real work. It takes some effort to to peel back those onion layers and look a little deeper. But when you do, there's a massive payoff because you get to understand who this person really was. You know what they were really about. And that's what before the end, searching for Jim Morrison seeks to bring about. What's interesting is that, um, you know, we, we as individuals are never actually truly the exact same person around every other per- human out there in the world. So no matter how much we try to cling to a specific identity, we're actually a bazillions of identities to all kinds of people. <coughs> so what's interesting for you is that you got a chance to interview all of these people who each had their own perspectives of Jim Morrison throughout his life, through, throughout different eras of his life. And it must have been interesting to, you know, uh, talk with his old buddies from long ago and and go, okay, what are the common gold nuggets? Where, where is the Venn diagram in these stories? That Where they match up, where they agree on this particular image of Jim? And then during this era of his life, where do these people match up the Venn diagram on those particular elements? So it sounds to me like you were out there, like, panning for gold. And then... 
did you find that you would learn information over here that then was in direct opposition to information you learned over here? Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> and again, like you said, we're all we're all we all have you know facets to us. Uh, again, not a lot of us are playing them out under a glaring you know white hot spotlight, <laughs> um, but as he did. But um, yeah, I mean, it's amazing the contradictions. You know, so I might even say the hypocrisy at different points. Um, it's it's just vastly intriguing. Um, one, in fact, <laughs> you know, we have one woman saying, he was just such an asshole, such an absolute asshole, <laughs> right? Because that was her subjective experience. Mm -hmm. And then we cut to someone else saying, he was just, he was a real good friend. Oh, my God. I mean, he was a real friend, you know? Oh, wow. uh, he wasn't phony, and he wasn't oh, <laughs> cool, wow. and oh. he wasn't da-da-da. So it's like Rashomon, you know, this, you could, you could... You could have uh, seven different perspectives. You could have 127 different perspectives. You're going to come away with 127 different gyms. You know, if, if I were to get 127 people who knew you, I imagine I would come away with 127, you know, different Kurt Clendenins. I mean, close, <laughs> of course. A lot of shared facets, but at the end of the day... It, it's, you know, it's simple math. It's down to the subjective experience of the person seeing you, experiencing you, absorbing you, friend or otherwise, you know, whatever they are, friend, lover, family member, whatever it is. But yeah, so it's, it's with Jim, I just think it's more, it's a sharper focus because he's so fa famous or infamous. Mm -hmm. So you get these vastly, <laughs> you know, conflicting and contradictory uh, takes on his persona. Did you find that with, let's say, for instance, with his childhood friends growing up, his earlier years, did those people tend to have a similar perspective of him? Or was was there even contradictions even within that? Yeah, you know, it, it, you could sense a theme starting there, that even, even in the early, you know, the nascent days, if you will, uh, the, his, his true formative years, it, it, it begun. It, it had begun in that... Uh, the, the button pusher was emerging, you know, uh, uh, testing the bounds of reality, as he said himself, um, uh, questioning authority. I mean, that was starting. So, yeah, where one person would say, you know, uh, yeah, here, actually, here's an actual instance from uh, the film. I just remembered uh, one woman told a lovely story. And this, I, I, actually, forgive me, I think this would be in the outtakes maybe in a special features. But one woman told a lovely story, which had been told on the record before, but it was great to have her say it, in seeing her say it, you know, as opposed to print. It had only been printed in the past. And she told this wonderful uh, story about him uh, foregoing a, a big party over a weekend, or parties, I think, down uh, in Florida during the college era to help her write a term paper. And he's just pulling, like, footnotes out of his ass because he was brilliant. I mean, and, and it was all legit. Like, it, his knowledge is just vast. And that's another thing that's often overlooked because people want to think of him as just a stoned-out, zoned-out rock zombie or whatever. You know, it's... <laughs> I don't know. Um, so he, he literally just uh, forfeited his entire weekend to help... And, and she was a platonic friend, I might add. This beautiful woman. So it's not like he had... I don't know, who knows what his motivations were, but he... he kindly helped her with this term paper, which she got an A on, I believe. 
Conversely, another guy who knew him around the same time said he was an amoral dude who didn't give a fuck about what he was doing, what he had done, what he was going to do. He basically did whatever the hell he wanted and screw you and what you thought about. You know what I mean? So here you go. It's like, boom. Two different wow. polar polar opposite uh, interpretations of Jim Morrison. Wow. It's interesting, too, because, you know, those comments say, you know, if we look, if we look at it through the, through the mirror aspect, those comments by each one of those people says a heck of a lot more about them than it does about Jim, actually. Because it, 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 these people are revealing their, their inhibitions, they're revealing their limited perspectives, they're re- revealing or their open perspectives, you know, because um, the people that we're hanging out with contain certain reflections of ourselves that we like of ourselves, that we like hanging around with, you know, and... Um, and if there are things that we, we point out that we don't like about him, well, that also says we're basically pointing out the things we don't like about ourselves inside. <laughs> you know, so that guy who's saying, oh, he just did whatever he wanted, he was such a jerk. I bet if we were to analyze that guy and look at his life, we might see that he actually acts that way towards people, you know? And he saw that peace within Jim and is like, oh, what, what's that guy doing, you know? There's, there's a great irony at play there. I mean, it's always sort of under the surface, you know? Um, but yeah, I, I, and I, I do think, you know, for better or worse, um, in terms of these people's subjective experiences, I think one really just basically cool aspect of the film is, you know, like any, like any well, not any documentary, but certain documentaries where they really delve into the friends, uh, the colleagues, co-workers, family, lovers, you, you know, the, the full spectrum of people who knew a subject. Um, I think it's uh, really amazing that that the film will end up uh, functioning as as a documentary about all of them. You know what I mean? Like, not this this film isn't just about Jim Morrison. It's about Jim and all these people he knew or cared about or loved or, or had sex with or what you know whatever it is. And there's a great moment in the film where one of his college roommates from UCLA talks about just that very thing about hey, you know what? This film's about us too. And for me, that was that was not lost on me. In the very early days of, of uh, gearing up to make the movie, I thought, you know what? I'm finally going to give a, a voice yeah. to these people who were a huge part of his orbit. And people we've only seen uh, uh, their names referenced in print mm. in No One Here Gets Out Alive or any of the various biographies, you know. Um, and, and, and those were great contributions, too. But, they were, you know, it's a quote in a book. Whereas now you get to see, oh, wait, this is the person wow. who said that? This is Philip Olino, the guy he went to UCLA with, that he did mushrooms and peyote with out in Joshua Tree in the desert. Wow, we get to see that guy for the first time ever? Boom, you know, there you go. Oh, my God. And and again, not to say there haven't been other documentaries that have shown some people here and there, but this one, I mean, I went deep. You know, I, I, I interviewed nearly, I think, 130 people on camera. And I connected with almost 800 people who knew Jim oh my God. throughout those six years in one form or another. And so I think a real, a real, you know, highly, highly uh, razor-focused picture emerges, you know, in the end. And yet, he's still a mystery. There are so many things about this guy, uh, like a true enigma, you know, little bubbles of mystery that will never be popped unless he were to pop them himself. Mm-hmm. Shall we say. <laughs> 
See how these so interesting. Oh, oh, not yet. I just saw the book down. Um, it's just, it's so intriguing to see how all the different relatives. <laughs> Are you sure? Yeah, yeah, let's, let's, let's put this. We're paying a bill right now yeah. in this podcast. <laughs> Um, so with all the footage that you have, it would be so interesting. Can so you guys fill this out first? Are you splitting? Oh yes, yes please. Thank you. Um, it'd be so interesting with all the footage that you've got to see how different people would edit together a, a, this documentary with all the footage you got. Because like, there's so many stories within this that will not end up in the movie or let's 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 put it this way folks if you right now are listening and you're a big Jim Morrison fan and you happen to know anyone who works for Netflix or you know let's say you want to see this badly in a multiple like like um, multi I mean we could have seasons and seasons of this thing I've said this to Jeff like you could you could probably have five seasons of all of the interviews that you did you can have who knows how many episodes, who knows how many seasons of hearing all these little intricate things that nobody else out there would, would ever hear. Right now, what, what's the cut at, did you say? Let's just say it's epic. <laughs> I don't want to give a specific number uh, yeah. publicly right now, but it is epic. It's definitely uh, blown far beyond my initial... My initial plan was to do a traditional, you know, two-hour documentary, give or take, and it just kept morphing and blossoming, and that's part of what's taken so long. And I'm, again, uh, absolutely grateful. So for every troll who's like, I'll be dead before this movie's done, you know, it's like, okay, well, is that a promise or a threat? You know, <laughs> hang in there, buddy. Hold your, hold your mud. Uh, you know, because it, it is. It's a, an amazing thing. Like, I've had just so many wonderful um, experiences along the way. Things, you know, taking me down rabbit holes I've never even anticipated. And now, in the end, I have something that transcends a traditional doc in every sense of, of the word, I mean, it's a, it's a true epic uh, miniseries now, and um, and that's the goal, you know, to sell it to uh, Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, Showtime, HBO, one of the major streaming services, and that's uh, what we're gearing up for right now. God, that's astounding. That is that is incredible. And on that note, uh, and while we uh, sign these bills here for the lunch we just had, I want to give a huge shout out. To uh, my editor and uh, co-armchair uh, detective Rick Frazier, uh, he's he was been my uh, Watson, along with Kurt uh, and uh, another good friend Andrew and his wife Cassie. Um, uh, all you guys have functioned as my fellow Watsons over the years in making this film, and Rick, of course, is the actual editor who's helped me uh, cut it all together. And uh, without you guys, it would not be the same, the same beast. And oh so I'm gosh. very grateful for that. Oh, man. <laughs> it's been so much fun. It's been so much fun just being an observer and watching the stuff that you uncover and just seeing the excitement that, uh, that washes over you as you come closer and closer to answers that you're looking for. Um, uh, boy, oh, boy. I mean... Oof! If you don't get a job as a detective after this movie comes out, I don't. I don't know what people are thinking. <laughs> I, did, I think I told you that I did have a uh, uh, at one point. Thanks. I did have a um, 
a, an actual detective telling me I was really good at this and that I, I could have another career as a private investigator. <laughs> Not that I think I want to do and that. Then what, but what's your motto? All... <laughs> what's your motto that would go on a t-shirt? Oh, so what right. Well, that awesome motto? What did we joke about that? Give me a... Give me six years and I can find anybody. Or, or maybe I think it was, give me 26 like, years. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think it was 20, yeah. Something like that. Going yeah. back to when I first started making uh, inroads into this, you know. Yeah. In, uh, give me 26 years and I can find anybody. Oh, oh. Did we not run those one? No. First we sang them. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, we're doing a podcast. Oh. We're, we're, we're half in and half out. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> Do you want me to get you changed for this? No, no, no. Keep it, man. Oh, Keep thank it. You yeah. Thank you Thank you. I'm, yeah, I'm Kurt. So yeah, I whatever. Uh, I'm horrible. What's what's the math? So that would be 30, 33 years, right? Yeah, give me thirty three years so and I can find anybody. This fall will mark <laughs> will mark thirty three years since I stumbled upon no one here gets out alive oh while blowing off college courses at College of DuPage. Oh my god! Kaching! And uh, oh my god. Uh, where we both went, right? Although we didn't know each other then. You know, it's astounding to think that right? how many people pay for. How many years of film classes? And if instead of paying for those film classes, if they were to put save that money, put that money into actually making the film, because as you as as you've discovered, you 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 learn as you go along. You know, it's one of those things where like you don't have the luxury of stepping back to look at something until after you've carved the path that you can look at and step back from. So it's like that you have to start going into it first before you realize what kind of nuggets and things are hiding there. So, I mean, it's like, you just dove into it, and as you were saying, it, it morphed, and it, it continually became something different than what you originally anticipated it to be. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I, um, you know, to, to riff on that, I mean, I, I don't want to say I'm proud of this, but I am very grateful for it, uh, that I did dive in, you know? And, 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 and a, in a lighter moment... In a lighter moment, I'll I'll joke about you know be, being a BTE as we call it before the end being a punk rock documentary, and it's not obviously. It, but in terms of the aesthetic and the uh, the point of entry, uh, you know, yeah, I this is only my second film, um, so I feel like I'm coming from maybe a. I don't want to say a more uh, naive aspect uh, uh, in terms of filmmaking, but maybe a more open platform in terms of, uh, you know, I don't know. I get, yes. I, it's like. That's a great way of putting it because. Um, I don't have any bad habits because I haven't been doing this for so long. Uh, you know, and I know like any, I'm sure Michael Moore could make a, a hell of a better documentary technically. I don't know, but I also have a huge personal connection with this whole thing. Going back to, like I said, when I was 18 years old, Jim, I've said this in the past, Jim functioned as sort of a, almost like an older brother figure or, or symbolic father figure to me in my adolescence, as he did for millions of fans, you know, uh, male, female, or whatever. Um, and so that's always meant a lot to me to sort of almost pay back to him in a way, give back to him, to his memory and his, his legacy. And, and I, I think I've done that with this film. You guys are not going to see anything like like this documentary, for sure. Your uh, your heads are going to explode. <laughs> um, you're going to go, how the hell did Jeff find that person? Um, it it takes 
that diligence of really truly following your calling and just like Jeff was saying not necessarily knowing any better you know like oh I didn't know any better so I kind of went this direction um you know I think like I worked with um, a guy named Gary Graver one time. Gary Graver was really good friends with Orson Welles. Not during the time of Citizen Kane, but after that in later years. He, he was really good friends with Orson Welles. And uh, I worked on a couple of short films with him, and he would rent out his truck with all this equipment and stuff. And there were a couple of um, film students on the set. And Gary Graver was always saying, Oh, I hate film students. I hate these film students. Because the thing is, is that it's not the film student's fault. Um, they're, they're going onto a set after being taught specific formulas, specific jargon, specific technical things in a classroom. So then when they get out there into the world and they're working with someone like Gary Graver, who just has figured, you know, he can eyeball stuff. He, 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 he's got stuff figured out. Um, these kids then come in and then they're questioning him. And they're going, well, aren't we supposed to do this, or shouldn't we do that, or shouldn't we light this more, or should, you know, da 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 And it was kind of just kind of getting in his way. You know, it's like, let me just do my thing here. And I think, had you gone to film school and learned all that technical stuff, that could have actually hindered you from moving forward with just following your instincts, because you would have been mentally double-checking with this information that you learned to be like, oh, is this something that the professionals do? Oh, is this something that's considered okay in the industry? You're just like, okay, we're kicking down this door, or we're knocking on this window, or we're crawling through this crawl space. <laughs> you, you just found your way in there, which is just brilliant. Well, in a, in a, in a weird way, and I appreciate that so much, um, in, a, in a weird way, it's, you know, it's a lot, I guess it's analogous to Jim, because Jim is often cited as this progenitor of punk rock, like Iggy Pop. Iggy Pop said, I saw Jim Morrison singing in Michigan in the fall of 1967, and I was like, I want to do that. I'm going to do that. Dude. So he gave up being a drummer to try to become a vocalist, oh you know, lead God. singer. And there you have it. Talk about diving in, and that guy's considered, right, the father of oh punk. God. So maybe that makes Jim the godfather of punk. I don't know. But at any rate, it was that was not lost on me. It was sort of a tip of the hat to Jim of like, hey, Jim just dove into being a singer yeah. and a poet. And, uh, you know, had no formal training. Well, I'm diving into being a, fil a documentary filmmaker, and I'm not, you know, out to win any awards. It's not about that. Like, uh, Rick and I, my editor, I sh sh give a shout-out to earlier, he and I recently said, what did we, we were talking about, uh, you know, some of the products that have come down the pike uh -huh. over the decades. And I said, you know, I'd rather put out a, a product that has some rough edges. And yeah. And, and know that it speaks to the truth. Yeah. Then put out some super slick corporate professional product yes. that just regurgitates the same yes. myths, lies, and bullshit. And that is that's BTE in a nutshell for me. Before the end, searching for Jim Morrison is trying to break on through, <laughs> shall we say, all the, the the bullshit and and just get to the get to the core of what's real about Jim Morrison. So. Now, the good news, folks, um, if you'd like to check out some of other Jeff's work, he does have a documentary called Strange Septembers, to those of you who, who love um, unidentified flying objects and really intriguing stories that, um, that uh, are...
are supernatural in nature and uh, cause you to think. You were able to get uh, Darth Vader into your movie, weren't you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was fortunate enough to interview <laughs> interview our Lord Vader, uh, uh, James Earl Jones, because James Earl Jones in 1975 had played Barney Hill, a uh, guy uh, who was the husband uh, component of a husband and wife uh, team, as it were, Betty and Barney Hill, who had had an infamous UFO sighting in the early 1960s. So I uh, somehow was able to corral that together for my film, which is called Strange Septembers, The Hill Abduction, and The Exeter Encounter. It's actually about two cases, the Betty and Barney Hill case and what is known as the incident at Exeter, both cases took place uh, in the 60s in New Hampshire, uh, in the United States. And um, <laughs> as we were joking earlier, sort of half-joking there about the DIY filmmaking, Strange Septembers, I'll just put it right out there, that film was originally just a labor of love I was going to upload to YouTube. And, and at some point, a production company came on board, and the film sort of took a sharp right turn and veered into you know a quote unquote professional release so I believe the story is amazing and the interviews are fantastic the sound is less than stellar because it wasn't shot with you know equipment for a major release but but the heart of it is there and uh, and that was a great springboard into filmmaking for me I learned so much cutting my teeth on that film um, and I'll always be grateful for it it's sort of my firstborn you know my first baby um and yeah, so Strange September is the Hill Abduction and the Exeter Encounter, available on Vimeo now. <laughs> what um, what was the first uh, domino that fell for that that got your interest in doing those, one of those two stories or both? Oh, um, well, I guess I should I should back up for a sec. Uh, when when I was growing up in in uh, Downers Grove, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago. Um, I, uh, by the time I, I, I'd absorbed the book about Jim when I was attending the College of DuPage um, I, I was getting vastly interested in documentary filmmaking but at the time I, I don't know what veered me down that way I guess it was the age of MTV and the real slick MTV videos and stuff and, and the vibe that I picked up on was that making films was all about the commercial aspects you know, or uh, corporate uh, culture and that kind of thing and I got really turned off by that so it, it took me all those years later to sort of come full circle to documentary filmmaking, again, sort of in a do-it-yourself capacity. But to back up again um, to James Earl Jones, it was actually, he was a huge part of that. I had a UFO sighting with my sister uh, right around the time that the, the, what was called the UFO incident, a, a 1975 TV movie with James Earl Jones and Estelle Parsons playing Betty and Barney Hill. I saw that one night at the age of eight, and it blew my mind. And then not long after, I had the UFO sighting, and so that was a formative experience for sure. It just stayed in the back of my mind. So when I finally came time to make my own film, I was like, oh, you know, I got to do this. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Now, with your UFO sighting, if you don't mind relaying that story of... So... There's a point when you had the UFO sighting and then a point between there and when you felt a strange object in your foot. Yeah, yeah, and believe me, this this is not lost on me. I joke about it all the time. Um, you know, as a documentary filmmaker, whether you're 
DIYing it or you've come from a formal film school, you know, I took the Tarantino approach, right? I just jumped in and gave myself my own film education, like, not to, not to align myself with Tarantino, but, you know, we both just dove in. Um, so as a documentary filmmaker, no matter what stripe <laughs> you, uh, you embody, you want to have credibility, right? You want to establish professional credibility. So the last thing you want to come off as is a tinfoil hat-wearing batshit motherfucker, right? But that's also the chance you take. So I'm, at the same time, not afraid to talk about these experiences I've had because they, they deeply resonate with me. Uh, I'm the first one to say, I, if, if we're the only intelligent living beings in this, in this universe, then that's pretty sad when you can't get past blood for oil wars and, and what have you. Um, but I digress. So, yes, around uh, that time I had that UFO uh, siding with my sister, and the next thing I know, decades had gone by where I'd had a recurring nightmare, a very visceral recurring nightmare of running underneath a tractor beam, what we call a tractor beam, spotlight uh, from a craft, like a, a, a flying saucer type craft. And in the dream, I would start running up in the air kind of like those bikes in E.T., right? Floating up into the air. And that's where the dream always stopped. And, and I don't recall seeing any alien beings or I just recall seeing this craft above me in the dream and the light coming down. And I didn't give it a whole lot of thought, honestly, until a few years ago when I had uh, the pain in my foot that you're speaking of. And it was uh, Christmas Eve about three years ago, I guess, so maybe 2015. And I finally couldn't take it because I could barely walk. And I saw this black dot in the bottom of my, the ball of my foot. I'm like, well, what the fuck is that? <laughs> and I don't recall stepping on a nail or a thumbtack or any kind of object. So I went to a, uh, uh, a podiatrist and, and they sent me to a dermatologist. And the guy, long story somewhat short, the guy basically told me to brace myself for a lot of pain as he was going to extract it, and then lo and behold, he extracted it in like two seconds, and he was sort of shocked at what it was, and I said, well, what is it? And I joked with him. I remember distinctly joking with him, saying, ha what is it, an alien implant? And he just sat there and looked at me. He said, honestly, I don't know what it is. I've never seen anything like it. And that was that. Now, the crazy thing is, it was after that was removed on that Christmas Eve that I then no longer can recount having that recurring nightmare. So it seems to me that the nightmare stopped. And, and as I've said, I said this on Coast to Coast, when I appeared on Coast to Coast about a year or so ago, I don't think I'm particularly worthy of study <laughs> by an alien uh, consciousness, if that's what happened. Uh, I think if, if that is what happened, and who the hell knows, but if it is, I think they, they just pick people at random the way we pick random marine life. You know, we'll tag a dolphin, right, and study that dolphin for years to learn more about it. And it makes sense. Uh, but again, I have no idea if that's what happened to me or not. But I, the cool thing for me is <laughs> I, I remain open to it. Because who, who knows? Who can prove it? Who can definitively prove, oh, there's no aliens, you know? I think that's just ignorance and narcissism talking shit. <laughs> you know? I don't know. But it's, it, it, nevertheless, it was a fascinating experience, and I apologize for rambling 
when so the long good about news it. is too, you, you held on to it and you showed it to me. That, that yes. was awesome that you held on to it. Yes, and now it's in a, a deep vault in the Swiss Alps where, where no one will ever find That's it. right. <laughs> because I've heard too many stories like Dr. Lear, right? Uh, Roger, was it Roger Lear? Who would study uh, alien implants or alleged alien implants and then, oh, oh my goodness, we misplaced that sample or the sample was misplaced by someone else. And, and I didn't want to go down that road, uh, so I haven't. But I don't, there it is. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Check it out when you can, folks. Strange September's, um, it's also narrated, isn't it narrated by RoboCop? Yes, yes, I like to dial them all in. Darth Vader, RoboCop, get them all in the mix at the same time. Uh, <laughs> it's, amazingly, uh, uh, the, the finished cut uh, was narrated by Peter Weller, uh, who played, of course, famously RoboCop, and, I might add, he played William Burroughs oh, yeah. in, in Naked Lunch, David Cronenberg film, which is just amazing, one of my favorites. Oh, my uh, God. I'm a huge Burroughs fan. Oh, my God. Um, but, yeah, he was, he was great. He came in and knocked it out. He laid down that narration and then said, I have to leave for the Star Trek set. He, he took off to the Paramount lot and where they were shooting at that time, the new uh, Star Trek film. Oh my God, how awesome is that? He did the narration for a movie about UFOs and then yeah. there he goes, he goes off to Star Trek. Yeah, it was, that was sort of uh, apropos, I guess. But yeah, uh, Strange September is the Hill Abduction and the Exeter Encounter. It's a interesting little, uh, uh, dare we say, DIY documentary about two giant UFO cases. I, I think that was my tagline. One small documentary, two giant UFO cases. So, check it out. I appreciate it. Here you go, ladies and gentlemen. Jeff Finn. Uh, his, his movie, Before the End, Searching for Jim Morrison, swimming to a theater. Possibly, we'd like to believe, near you. <laughs> 